Hey, good morning, everybody. Hey, so I've been on a, a number of mission trips overseas, kind of like uh, what Kate is going on, most of them much shorter than that. And I'm sure that many of you have too, right? You've maybe been on overseas on a couple of trips. And a lot of times when you send really short-term teams, uh, a lot of times what they have you do is they'll have you do a construction project or some sort of uh, thing where you're building with your hands, right? And so I've been on a, a number of trips uh, but actually only two of them have been this kind of construction kind of trip. And, and these trips were very, very different from each other. Uh, one of them, the first one, uh, was a trip that I told you about just a couple weeks ago in a sermon. That was when I went to Ghana and we had uh, this uh, big open garage space that we were tasked with building these uh, cement block walls on the inside to convert this thing into an office space. So it was this construction project that we did. Um, the other one that I did was I went to Ecuador, uh, but it was, it was very, very different. It wasn't a construction project, but rather it was a destruction project. And so there was this huge three-story building, and uh, our task was just to tear out all of the interior down. And so there was 10 of us guys, 10 or 11, I think, of us guys that were there, and it took us just about two days to just just completely destruct these three floors. And they gave us like blunt objects like sledgehammers and we just went to town. And so we were knocking down walls. We were taking out a bunch of trash, a bunch of garbage. We were uh, removing furniture, all kinds of stuff. And it was just this fun, uh, just kind of thing where it's like, let's just get some aggression out and just clear this thing out. So in two days, we completely uh, took apart this building. Has anybody been a part of a demolition project like that before? Yeah, a few of you have. Well, for the construction trip that I went on to Ghana, and I told you about this a few weeks ago, I was horrible at it, by the way, but it was a very different thing. Um, The whole time I was, uh, I had to be like taught what to do, and I was guided, and it was kind of this meticulous process of measuring and aligning, making sure everything was squared away, and it took me forever to get a handle on it. After about eight days, I kind of finally got the handle on it, and in about 10 or 11 days of working, I just myself built like these two short walls. Like that's all I had to show for it. And and where uh, after about 10 days, this, this building project and building up takes a long time to catch on. Uh, Tearing down is very easy and natural, right? You see the tension in this passage that was just read was that our behavior, in other words, what I do, what you do, how we interact with one another we'll have one of two results. It will either build up or it will tear down. And here's kind of the scary part. The the tearing down, you see, what we do with our words, with our attitudes, and with our actions with one another, um, it's kind of like getting a 20-pound sledgehammer in your hands. It's easy. It's natural. It just flows. You just go at it and it just goes quickly. Like it's easy to tear people down, right? It's easy to be angry at people, right? It's easy to be selfish and go after our own needs. And just like demolishing a building moves quickly and just in a matter of a short time, things are left in shambles. That's exactly what happens when individuals in this church tear one another down. Uh, The result in the church is that destruction happens quickly and it's left in shambles. 
So Paul is going to try to lay out uh, five practical examples or commands for us in this text of ways that we can either build up or tear down. And you'll notice as we go through these, uh, Paul has the same structure. He gives a, a negative example and a positive example of each one, and then he gives a reason for why we should do it. So I want to um, walk through these five this morning and, and allow us to kind of sit under these and just to see how we're doing, just to maybe measure ourselves as a church and measure ourselves as an individual. And now, as I prayed about this, um, I was like, okay, God, why do you have me preaching this passage? Why do we need to hear this? I'm not really a command guy. I'm kind of more like go with the flow. I kind of like heart motivation stuff. Like, why are we doing this? Why do we need to hear this? And I think what God revealed to me is that um, unless truth is put clearly right in front of your faces at times, there is a, a very uh, small chance that we're actually going to change or change any of our rhythms or habits or our sinful tendencies. Uh, two years ago, I, for my birth, on my birthday, uh, I got on a basketball court and I played basketball with a bunch of guys and I was... Uh, shocked with how incredibly slow and out of shape and out of practice I was. I mean, it was horrible. I couldn't keep up with anyone on the court. And after two hours of being in the gym, I had this two-hour look in the mirror of my physical status saying, dude, like, you've lost it. Like, you you are not okay. And because of that, ever since then, uh, for these past two years, I have eaten healthier. Just from that day, I have eaten healthier, and I have been to the gym more, and I have worked out more than any other two years of my life. And I sense that most of us aren't going to make a, a radical change with our behavior unless we have some sort of truth that helps us look in the mirror, that it's just right in front of us. And so I believe that that's the opportunity that we have with these five commands that Paul is going to give us. And what's at stake this morning is not just simply your spiritual health, but it's the spiritual health of all of us. It's the whole church because this is implying that we're all relying on one another. Like we honestly have an opportunity in this fairly new church that we're in Providence. It's just a church plan of less than two years old. We have an opportunity to follow Jesus' example and build a new church that that, that loves like Jesus, that talks like Jesus, that interacts and, and sacrifices for one another like Jesus does. That's what we could do if we live in this way. Now, last week we learned that the gospel creates a, a new self or a new individual identity. And this passage is coming right off that, and it's saying, hey, not only have you become a new self if you are in Christ, but the reality is, is we have become a new kind of community. We have a new communal identity now, and it's going to be determined by how we interact. And the reality is, is that we need everyone. So could you, with me, take a look at these five categories? We don't usually have five-point sermons around here, but we'll try to keep it moving here. And so here are the five categories that we're looking at today. We're looking at truth-telling, anger, work and money, uh, our words, and in general, our Walk. Okay, the question is, is are we building up with these things or are we tearing down? Okay, let's look at truth telling. You ready for this? So Ephesians 4, uh, starting in verse 25. Uh, Here it is right here. It says, therefore, 
Having put away falsehood, this is the first one, truth-telling. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now remember, this passage is connecting straight from last week's passage. And last week, uh, Andrew talked to us about the fact that we have been given a new self. And one of the first things that happens in this new way, this new self, is that we see the truth. We are no longer darkened. We're no longer living in futility, but we have the truth of Jesus. Therefore, this is saying, because we have truth and we know truth, we speak truth. Okay? So commandment number one very simply says, don't lie and tell the truth. This is pretty straightforward, right? Just don't lie and tell the truth. At first, you're like, okay, do we really need to hear this? It sounds kind of like something that I would tell to my five-year-old. You know, like, don't lie, don't lie. We all know this, right? Except for... When we take a look in our culture, we realize, okay, but actually, you know, uh, politicians lie, um, news sources lie, uh, advertisers lie, salesmen lie, people who are selling things on Facebook Marketplace lie, right? You start, you start thinking about this, you're like, wait, actually, maybe all of us kind of lie. A few decades ago, I read a study of a I read a study from a few decades ago of a woman named Bella DePaulo. She's a social psychologist at UC Santa Barbara, and she asked 147 adults to uh, tr- take with them a piece of paper and for one week straight write down every time that you lie or mislead someone. They tallied it all up at the end of a week, and it, and it showed that everyone in that uh, in this test, all 147, uh, lied on average one to two times per day telling one to two lies per day. And the question for us is, are we any different than the 147 adults that were tested? Like if you were given the same test, what would be the results here at Providence if we handed out some, you know, 250 pieces of paper of the the people that attend here? Um, You know, as we are interacting here on Sunday morning, are we telling the truth to one another? As we interact in our city groups, in our huddles, and and we're talking, are we actually telling the truth to one another? Or are we putting up a false image? Are we misleading people? Are we making excuses for things? Are we hiding inadequacies? I actually got interested and read a few studies on lying, and it essentially showed that lying is kind of a way, they all concluded that lying is kind of a way of life. It's a part of our culture here in America which is kind of humbling, because, and I think the reason that that it has become that is because lying, it preserves our image. It it helps us get our own way. It helps us make more money a lot of times. It's always self-seeking, and it is everywhere. But Paul says in this passage, he says, don't do it. Don't fall into temptation. That's them. You are different than that. Why? Why should we not do it? He gives the reason in this passage, and he says, because we are members one of another. This command specifically applies to Christians right here in this room. It says, we, must, we are part of the same colors because we belong to one another. We are connected. We are part of the same structure. We're reliant on the truth that we're living out together. We live in a community that's based on truth. So therefore, we must be truth tellers. And scholar Klein Snodgrass says it this way. He says, a lie is a stab into the very vitals of the body of Christ. So each time you lie, 
passively by putting up a false image as you're talking to someone or on social media. Every time you lie by, um, by just flat out not telling the truth, you are taking a shot at our community. But Jesus, remember, claimed to be what? He claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, right? He taught us that, that what truth was, and he himself was the embodiment of truth in everything he did. And so any community centered on Jesus by nature will be a truth-telling community. So the question is, when it comes to truth-telling, are we building up or are we tearing down? That's the first one. Here's command number two about anger. This is the very next verse, verse 26. It says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. A lot of you, if you grew up in church, you've heard this verse before. And we're going to camp out here uh, for just a little bit longer because this one, I think, is massive. Like this idea of anger and what it does to our hearts and our souls and our ability to hear from God. Um, Now, this is a little bit confusing at first because it says, be angry. The first two words say, be angry. And so scholars have debated for years, like, what is this actually talking about? And so some people, some scholars have said, you know what, this is telling us that we should have righteous anger. When we see something that's sinful that we don't like, we should reflect kind of God's anger and, and just be angry. And while I think that this does permit righteous anger for a short amount of time. I don't think that's what it's talking about because the rest of this command is about not sinning in your anger. It goes on to kind of a different topic uh, because if you, uh, if you sit on your anger, it says it gives an opportunity for the devil uh, to turn your anger into sin. So righteous anger is okay if you're careful, but it's not primarily what this verse is talking about because the rest of the verse tells us to be very careful with your anger. Providence, <clears throat> church family, could I pass this along to you? Could you be very careful with your anger? It is not something to play around with. It's not something to sit on for a long time. Essentially, when something happens to you, the moment you feel anger, you are metaphorically standing on the edge of a cliff. And one step forward, one ounce of holding on to that is metaphorically taking a short step and tumbling down off that. It is not something to be messed with. So what I want to do is, is do a quick heart check about your own anger, okay? So I want you to think for yourself in your head for a second. Okay, here it goes. <clears throat> is there anyone in your life that has done something to you, whether it's big or small? And when they did that to you, you found yourself becoming angry at them. And the moment you got angry, time moved on, and you didn't uh, do anything about it, but you held on to it. And you held on to it some more. And you held on to it some more. And now it's months or maybe years or maybe decades later. And as you think about that person that did that thing that made you angry, your primary thought of who they are is encompassed in the fact that you have anger and bitterness toward them. 
Verse 26 says, don't let the sun go down on your anger because when you hold on and you hold on and you hold on some more, it says it gives an opportunity for the devil to do crazy things with that anger in your heart. It gives the devil a crazy opportunity to turn that into something uh, that it never could have been if you don't hold on to it. Pastor Kent Hughes says, the day of anger should be the day of reconciliation. I love what Tim Keller says about anger, anger and bitterness. He says, you know that the devil has capitalized on your anger when you consistently want to see the person you're angry with harmed, distressed, or brought down. You want unfortunate things to happen to them. Do you have anyone who, in your life, when you hear about something, maybe it's through the grapevine, maybe it's through a friend, through social media, that when you hear about something bad, maybe it's not a friend, maybe it's an acquaintance, but when you hear about something bad that happens to them, a part of you does the, yes, that's what they deserve. Yes, I'm glad that they're getting a a bad treatment from someone else. This, uh, this command was a sucker punch to me this week because as I thought about it quickly, four different people came to mind uh, that I have had answered. Four different people who have done things, most of them minor, most of them just one or maybe a couple things. They have done to me, and after I had this initial result of anger in my heart, I, uh, I held on to it. And I held on to it again. And I held on to it some more. And now, because of this, I realize that I have, by the way, all of these uh, four men are people in ministry, which makes it, I feel like, even uh, more sad considering how we're supposed to be built up together. But now, because of that, I know that I have to have uh, four potentially awkward and potentially emotional and very, very humbling conversations with a couple people, or with, well, four people in the next couple weeks. And I would challenge you, if someone or some people came to mind, as I was just describing that a second ago, uh, would you do something about it? Uh, Don't be ashamed. I just told you I'm going to talk to four people. Feel free to get your phone out, get your notes out, write the name down of some people, and go actually approach them. Go actually deal with your anger and, and actually pursue, pursue forgiveness and reconciliation. Because after all, this is a picture of the gospel, right? This is one of the amazing powers that we have in Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus did to us, right? Like, do we remember that we were the people that, that, that offended Jesus to begin with? We were the one who sinned against him. And what did Jesus do? Did he sit up there with his arms crossed and stew in heaven and get bitter for a while and hope that horrible things happened to us? No, he came down from heaven to earth, right? He pursued us. He came after us. He sacrificed for us. He forgave us. He dealt with what was done to him by giving it all and forgiving us. And now we are set free and we have the opportunity to reflect this forgiving and reconciling and free community that just shows off the gospel. And so when it comes to anger, the question is, is are we building up or are we tearing down? Okay. Number three, uh, this is about work and money. None of us have any issues with money, right? It should be fine, I'm sure. Okay. 
Next verse. That was a joke, by the way. Uh, it says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This command is about work and money. Now, stealing uh, was a problem in their day. Remember, this is not America. This is 2,000 years ago in uh, the, the in, in the city of Ephesus or around the city of Ephesus. And, and what was probably happening, who was probably being addressed, were blue-collar laborers. And this is kind of why. So these blue-collar laborers in their day, um, there were times when uh, they just essentially ran out of work. Like they didn't have anything to do and didn't have a skill to do uh, another job. And because there was no welfare system in the day and because um, uh, they didn't save up for like a period of unemployment, uh, these men or these fathers of their families who were charged with, who were the the only people who made money and they were the, um, the ones who were supposed to provide for their family, they had nothing to give to their family. And so they found themselves in this awkward place. And so many of them were stealing to provide for their family. And it's kind of a head scratcher because like, okay, what, what exactly are they supposed to do? Well, Paul says, you know, he says, do honest work, go work hard. And I can imagine an Ephesian man, a father in the church in the day saying, Paul, newsflash, there's no work to be done. I can't do anything. That's why we're in this predicament. So I have to do something to provide for my family. So what was Paul expecting? So if you look at the reason that he tells them to do honest work, it's so that you may have something to share with someone in need. So the solution to having no money and no job and no means to provide is, is not to go steal, obviously, but the solution is that the church in their day and in our day would be passionate, close-knit, so loving, so sacrificial, so caring and compassionate that they worked hard to make extra money. So when your friend goes unemployed, you provide for their family. It's kind of a radical concept, right? Like imagine if we as a church did like a group budget together, like at the end of the week, we just kind of threw all our money in. Like that'd get weird pretty quick, right? There'd probably be some fist fights. Maybe we'd turn into a weird commune after a while. I don't know. But But you read stories like Acts 2 where it talks about the church having everything in common and them selling their possessions to give things to the poor. You're like, man, that's amazing. Your heart kind of leaps out of your chest. You're like, I want to be a part of something like that that is truly sacrificial. Like, it kind of gets you excited. And this command lands in the same place. It lands on generosity. Now, I imagine, if you put this in our terms, modern day, I imagine that most of us in the room uh, think that in our future— at some point, uh, we're going to be making more money and have more money than we have now and, and be more financially free than we have now. I, I don't know if you would say that in your head, but I think most of us are kind of counting on that. My wife and I kind of talk like that. We're like, yeah, one day when we get out of school debt and we have more money, what we're going to do is we're going to buy a bunch of rental houses and then we're going to pay them all off. And it's going to be, uh, we're going to have all this passive income and we're going to have retirement and it is going to be great. Now, as you think, as you think about achieving your financial dreams, think about this. Whether it's getting debt-free or making more money or building something up in the future, what do you imagine you're going to do with that extra money? Paul would challenge us 
that we are to work hard to make more to be able to give more. Now, i got to be honest. I'm reading this and I'm like, man, it kind of makes me uncomfortable to think that I could buy a rental house, pay it off, and get passive income, and then I'm going to send all of that money to like a church plant in Thailand, or I'm going to have all of that money given to a, a ministry that's here on the ground to help refugees or home, like, like, that's a little hard, right? Like, I know it's right, but at the same time, it's like, but this is my money. Like, I want to be, I want to go on a vacation every once in a while, right? This idea of making money to radically be generous and to give money is the kind of call that is given here. And in reality, a community centered on Jesus will be generous like him. If you think of Jesus' posture toward the people of God or toward everyone, it was one where he invested everything and he gave away everything for the good of others. So as you work and you make money, are you building up or are you tearing down the church? Okay, number four. This is about words, okay? We're going to talk about our words that we speak. This might hit some of us uh, in the heart. So going to verse 29. It says this, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, you've maybe heard this verse quoted before, like don't have any corrupting talk. Some of you, uh, in some of your versions, it says, uh, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. And you're like, okay, wait, what does that mean? Does it mean like we're not supposed to cuss a lot? Does it mean uh, we're not supposed to cuss at all or use the Lord's name in vain? And the reality is, I think it does include those things, but it's not only limited to those things. This um, idea, this, this word of corrupting or unwholesome was most often used to talk about uh, rotting fruit or rotting fish in the day. Have you ever been in a Nebraska lake in the summer and all of a sudden like a rotting fish comes like floating up to you? It's upside down and it's like this big and it used to be this big and there's things coming. It's, it's very disgusting. And that's how Paul is describing these words that come out of our mouth toward one another. This command is condemning the kind of talk that rots Others, whether it's uh, vulgar or inappropriate or tearing someone down, it will rot someone else. And the question is, is it a is that a common thing for you to do? I think for me, in my teenage years and in my twenties, it was probably one of my biggest struggles that I had. It was one of my biggest old self struggles. And Paul's saying, if we're okay with speaking corrupt words regularly, Paul's saying, hey, we better check ourselves on this. And it says, no corrupting talk. The way that this is worded implies that each and every word that we speak are actually accounted for. And it's not like, oh, let some stuff fly here, some stuff fly there. Uh, and if they're kind of funny, or if I'm tearing down someone who deserves it, then, it, then that's, that's probably okay. The picture here is that each and every word that is unwholesome, or each and every word that is corrupting, that flies out around, each one is like a, a sharp dart that's thrown at the body of Christ. That's the idea, and every word wounds it. And I think one of the reasons that corrupting talk is so dangerous is because encouraging words are so good. 
You see here, it says the encouraging words uh, give grace to those who hear in verse 29. Think of that contrast, corrupting words versus encouraging words. Do you think of I'm sure a lot of you have, have heard encouraging words from your past, maybe years ago, that you've really held on to. Think of the impact that those have on you. As I was thinking of this, I thought back to sixth grade to my first ever school basketball game that I played in. I had 12 points, by the way. That's kind of good for a, for a sixth grader, right? Anyway, so I got done playing, and a parent of one of the other players uh, made a comment and said, man, you kind of look like Michael Jordan out there. And I'm like, and I still remember. That was like 25 years ago. I still remember it. Now, it does point out the fact that they had a horrible basketball IQ, because obviously I did not look like Michael Jordan as a sixth grader out there, but it stuck with me, and I stuck with basketball. I remember 11 years ago when I preached my first sermon um, at a college ministry here in town, and Jack Arendt, some of you know him, he's a pastor at City, or excuse me, an elder at City Light now, he said, man, he said, you, you can really teach, like you have a gift of teaching. And, and I held on to that. It's, I can hear it as clear as day, it was 11 years ago. Encouraging words are God's grace to us. I remember another time, we're doing a, a, a retreat for college ministry leaders. Some of you in the room were actually there. Uh, and we, uh, we split up into guys and girls, and uh, we essentially, uh, we took a turn being vulnerable, each person one at a time, and sharing uh, some of the lies that we believe about ourselves and some of our deepest insecurities that we have. And as each guy was vulnerable one at a time, the other guys in the room, these young men, would speak up and just speak words of encouragement or affirmation. Or they would open their Bibles and just speak and preach the gospel to them by reading verses over them. And it was this incredible time. I mean, there were dudes crying. There were dudes hugging. And you better believe that after this time, after these two hours of doing this this intense exercise, we walked up from that basement and we were like brothers bonded together because we had spoken encouraging words to one another. Man, don't you think that we are all in need, in desperate need of encouraging words? Like, doesn't it mean the world to you when someone goes out of their way to speak life-giving, encouraging words to you? Don't you think that, that speaking encouraging words is one of the most powerful things that we could do as the body of Christ to build up the church, right? The next verse in here says that corrupting talk grieves the Holy Spirit, or it saddens God when we choose to do that. Because we have the opportunity to give grace. We have the opportunity to speak life-giving words that, that spread the very grace of God. We can be a community that uses words to reflect the grace of Jesus, just like Jesus used his own words. Think of the power of Jesus' words. He used his words to call his disciples into his mission. He used his words to forgive people. He used his words to preach the good news to the masses. He used his words to comfort the brokenhearted. He used his words to heal the sick. And he used his words to build his kingdom with grace-filled, gospel-soaked words. And now we have an opportunity to do the same, to build one another up, to build up our church by speaking gospel words, by speaking encouraging words. So could we be a church that reflects Jesus by building up with our words and not tear down? Okay, number five, and this is a quick one because it's somewhat of a summary of 
all of the others. So we'll hit it real quick. It says in verse 31, this is about just our general walk with God. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And Paul here is just encompassing kind of everything. Bitterness has to do with the place our heart is in. Anger and wrath are kind of synonymous for our, our, our disposition or, or our, our posture toward other people. Clamor and slander. The last two are, are the yelling and the screaming and the anger and the, and, the, and the profane words that come out of our mouth when we harbor those other three things inside of us. In other words, Paul is giving this holistic, like inside out, hey, these are all your old life struggles, inside and outside. And he, and he says, do away with all of them. Let all of them be put away from you. He said, but instead, in verse 32, he says, be kind to one another, forgiving one another, <clears throat> or excuse me, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This summarizes the whole section of how we are to interact with one another. We are to be kind one to another. We are to be tenderhearted. Tenderhearted means like a, a deep, heartfelt compassion for one another, a true compassion for one another. And then he says, and, and, and just as God forgave you in Christ, then you're to, to turn around and do the same. Now, Ephesians scholar Harold Hayner says that this uh, forgave or forgiving, those words are actually better translated grace or graciousness. And, and what he's saying is um, forgiving is good, but grace is a, is a bigger overarching umbrella in which forgiveness lands. And so, and so he, he made the case that like Paul is is looking at all these things. He's looking at all your interactions, and he's saying, think of all of the grace that Jesus has shown you. Like, think about it for a second. The fact that, that he put you together. The, the, the fact that, that he brought you into this world. The fact that he is um, walking with you. The fact that he uh, lets you breathe the air that you breathe. That your heart is pumping because he is holding you together. The fact that he has taken you from your old rebellious self and he has saved you and made you into a new self. And you have uh, the truth now. You have new motivations. You have new, a new heart. You have a new mind. You think differently. You can act differently. All of these things that God has given us this grace that he has shown us and, and this, this, this unmeasurable, lavish grace that he has given, all of this selfless stuff that he has given toward us. He said, take that kind of posture that Jesus did toward you and think about that when you interact with everyone else. Show that kind of grace. Show that kind of forgiveness. Speak those kind of words. Tell that kind of truth. And by loving and speaking and acting toward one another just like Christ has acted toward you. Um, I know that we don't usually rattle down lists of commands to do, but I, I hope and I pray that, um, because this is God's word, that this was in a way a mirror into your soul and that you have uh, maybe felt challenged or convicted in some way. And I, I want to wrap up by just giving uh, two simple next steps for us as we're maybe digesting all of this kind of uh, fire hydrant kind of version of what we did. Uh, the first thing, the first challenge is this. 
If there is something that you feel like God told you to do, someone you feel like God told you to talk to during this time, uh, could you very simply just go and do it? If you need to write it down, put it in your phone, put a reminder, or actually walk out after this and go text or call someone, would you just go do it? And the second thing is this. Um, if we want grace to come out of us toward other people, we have to be people who ingest or take in God's grace, the grace of Jesus. And so we have to understand that if we are, you know, taking in, you know, binge-watching trashy Netflix shows, or if we're listening to, to just, just garbage podcasts, or if we're around people that are, are only tearing people down all the time, or we just have unhealthy life habits and rhythms, we are most likely not going to be able to lavishly pour out grace on other people. It's just not a reality. And so the call, the second call from this, is much like what Andrew said in his last couple applications last week. It is to actually take in the grace of Jesus. Take an inventory of maybe some of the things that you need to step away from and, and start figuring out ways like, like, uh, like having spiritual conversations with people by listening to, to good podcasts. And maybe uh, one of the most powerful on your in my life, I feel like we've beat this drum over and over again and we're not stopping soon because it, would, it has an incredible impact on your life. That could you, when you wake up in the morning, let the first thing you do not be to check social media, not to look at your phone, not to get all freaked out and worried about something, but leave your phone and go and spend a few minutes of silence with Jesus and just listen to him. Let his grace pour down on you so that you could then have the ability to see with his eyes and to be able to act in a way that he acts. Providence could we together take the commands of God seriously? Could we take in the grace of Jesus? And could we build up one another with the grace of Jesus? Let me pray. God, we are uh, thankful uh, that, um, that in the scriptures that you have allowed us to see a quick heart check, a quick mirror to look into, uh, to be able to determine, hey, are we really living out what you've called us to live out? Uh, that's not normative in our culture uh, to be people who sit under authority. And so, God, I pray that we would be people who listen to your voice, who follow your promptings, and that we could be a church that talks like you, that loves like you, that sacrifices like you. Jesus, could we be people collectively who build one another up? Could we stick out amongst Omaha as, hey, there's that church that loves each other so much, that talks good about one another so much, that sacrifices for each other and for their neighborhood and, and for their friends so much. God, could you uh, mark us with that kind of building up? Jesus, would we walk with you? Would we put off the old self and we, would we put on the new? Could we be kind tenderhearted and forgiving and showing grace to one another, just like God in Jesus has shown grace to us. We pray this in your name. Amen.